they wound up getting a new like vice president of broadcasting or whatever. And he was based out of the station. And I wound up meeting you with him one day and saying, listen, I've been doing some work in, in this podcasting space and you are sitting on a gold mine of resources and most of them are collecting dust. They've got three studios that are used for four hours throughout the day. They've got all these salespeople who aren't selling. They've got a promotions department who have nothing to promote. Let's use what you have and let's help people make podcasts out of this building, right? Like they'll pay you. You don't have to pay for it anymore. Podcast Junkies, episode 292, eight away from 300. Oh my God. Welcome back. I'm Harry Duran and we're going to talk podcasting this week. We talk it all the time on this show. We talked about it last episode with Brendan Mulligan, founder of PodPage. He's an entrepreneur who cut his teeth in the music industry. He went on to found, co-found startups such as One Sheet, Cluster Labs, LaunchKit, Elevate, and his current project, PodPage. So lots to learn from, from an entrepreneurial perspective. Very inspiring conversation, episode 291. Make sure you check that out. This week, we get to invite friend of the show, Matthew Passy on. Matthew and I connected years ago at good old Joe Pardo's uh, MapCon conference and uh, talk about one of the hardest working folks in, in podcasting. It's definitely Joe Pardo. <laughs> so Matthew uh, and I share that story on this episode. He's the podcast consultant. He helps brands, small businesses, and individuals use podcasts and podcast advertising to connect with smart and engaged audiences. And today we talk about his background, really interesting background in radio, um, why there's still a major competition between radio and podcasting, a bit about crypto and the decentralization of finance, which was an interesting rabbit hole, how podcasts are getting corporatized, that's a mouthful of a word, and some interesting work that Matthew is doing in localized content. So it's just a fun time to catch up with uh, old friends, and I just am grateful for this platform and this opportunity to do that. So you, I think that comes through in, our, in the nature of our conversations. I hope you enjoy that. If you did, and you are, this one or past ones, leave us a rating and a review. Leave me a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash podcast junkies. I'd be more than happy to read these out on future episodes. I always want to give a plug for newpodcastapps.com if you're interested in learning more about what's happening in the value for value model and how you too can support directly the podcast that you love. All right, let's jump into this conversation with Matthew. But before we do, just a couple of words from folks that I'm honored to partner with and who support this show. This episode is brought to you by Focusrite and specifically the Scarlett 2i2 sound card, one of my favorite go-to sound cards, something I use for each and every podcast recording. The 3G line is a go-to for all new podcasters. Find out more at podcastjunkies.com forward slash focus right, and the link will be in the show notes as well. Matthew Passy, my podcasting friend, uh, host of Podcast Me Anything, founder of the Podcast Consultants and CEO. I guess that's your official title, right? Yeah, we decided to throw a title on there. Just go <laughs> CEO, CPO, Chief Podcasting Officer. Yeah. Thank you for a uh, long overdue appearance on Podcast Junkies. It is great to be here, and it is great to see you, sir. We have to do what we can to just find ways to connect with our friends. The last conference uh, uh, Natalie and I attended before COVID was PodFest. And we, I think we arrived on March 12th. And like the next day, like everything was just, you were, uh, we were hanging out there. Were you there? 
at Podfest? I was there. Yeah. I love going to Podfest. I especially love going when Natalie's going to be there because she always gets me the best headshots and I'm long overdue for some new ones. But yeah, I remember wondering if it was going to get canceled, flying down there, flying home. And then when I got home, seeing stories about a TSA agent at the Orlando airport testing positive and being nervous for two weeks that I caught COVID <laughs> on my way home. And I don't think people... I mean, people had an idea because I remember people were like doing like the hand sanitizer thing, the fist bump or elbow bump. And then you were like, oh, this festival or like South by Southwest got kind of sold. And they're like, oh, this maybe this is a maybe this is a serious thing. And then I don't think anyone could ever have predicted the whole world would shut down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was not shocked that the world did shut down. I was more shocked that we were able to get through it and that there wasn't bigger problems coming out of that one but it was nice to be with people and see everyone before the world did shut down yeah it's amazing that we're still dealing with it though yeah and i think it's uh it's a function of um incorporating it into like our day-to-day at this point um granted i mean most of my close friends know that my my best friend from high school passed away but that happened like the first two months and we, yeah, we had kind of hadn't been in touch, but he was like, we was best friends in high school for like four years and then into college. So my closest friends and, you know, he, he was diagnosed, he had it. And then we were just in constant communication with the family. And, and then he just, I, they told me like he didn't make it. I was just like, that's nuts. It was really, really crazy. I'm so, so sorry to hear that. Yeah. It's uh yeah. It, somehow everybody was affected in some way, shape or form. I'm sorry. You had such a, a close direct contact. I mean, for us, I know a lot of people, they got vaccinated or, or they've just ignored it. We have young kids who are still not eligible. So we've still had to be a little vigilant and try and keep it out of our house though. They wound up getting it at school anyway. And thankfully it was just very mild for them. Well, it's so funny. And, and, then, and the only reason I mentioned that is because now it's like my brother recently told me he got it and then just, it was, he had it for like a week and then my cousin got it and he kind of like, t- you know, just took care of himself and recovered and my partner, Natalie's sister, her baby got it. But so now it's just like, it's almost like the flu in terms of like people are figuring out that it's just a part of everyday life. And then don't even want to go like down the, the rabbit hole of like the mandates and the shutdowns and everyone just voicing their opinion on social media. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, the politicization of it has made it really extra, I'll call it special. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're right. I think we're getting near that phase now where we can all breathe easy, know there are a few things you can do to mitigate yourself and know that now if you're doing those things and taking care of yourself, getting it won't be the, you know, the diagnosis that it was back in 2020 where that diagnosis felt uh, pretty catastrophic. I'd be remiss. This is, we're recording this February and like the, the latest podcast brouhaha is around Joe Rogan. Who? Never heard of him. <laughs> yeah, some people may have heard of him. He's a, <laughs> I think I, it's so funny because I, I don't want to get into the, the fray and I never get involved in these like social media. I feel like the people who post about this stuff have just nothing else better to do than to like <laughs> post on social media. And, uh, and so, but I think my overall take without getting too far down that path is just, I saw his like six minute video and like, as a fellow podcaster, I'm just like, like, we just do the best we can. And we're just learning as we go. And, and I'm just like, if you don't like it, just don't listen and move on. And it's not like that's the only source of like, questionable information. And then it's just a, a function of just doing your own homework. And I think people are just like, 
expecting him to be the be all end all and and it's it's i've been biting my tongue so hard just at, re- at reading the post but i don't know what your thoughts have been lately on it i mean joe rogan one i mean i used to love old joe rogan comedy i loved him on news radio i've never really consumed his show i've heard a clip here and there yeah i understand his style i understand what he's trying to do i agree like dude's allowed to say what he wants to say freedom of speech all that good stuff and you know i agree with you if you don't like it don't listen yeah i'm more interested not in joe rogan's side of it because i think the way he handled it was you know very very apropos like i thought he gave a a good you know apology or, or whatever you want to call it yeah i'm honestly more interested in the spotify side because Spotify for the longest time was a technology platform and anybody could be on the platform and didn't really matter. But now they are content creators or content, you know, mediators of sorts by paying Joe Rogan for that content. And so their response to all this has been way more interesting to me than Joe Rogan's response. Cause yeah, there are people out there who are going to say stupid things. There are people out there who are going to push falsehoods. There are people out there who I just don't agree with and, and that's okay. Yeah. But right. As the, as the platform, the way you handle it is going to make a bigger difference. And I'm, I'm intrigued by all the podcasters who are saying, take my show off Spotify. I don't want to be on that platform anymore. It's like, listen, you've got, that's your freedom of speech. You know, if you don't want to be on there and that's how you want to tell Spotify, you don't like what they did. Yeah. Fine. Do what you got to do. I remember when, Oh, what was that stupid app that came luminary? I remember when oh, Luminary yeah. first came out and they just had every podcast in the world on there and they were selling ads against it. And I was annoyed and I reached out to them. I was like, take my show off your platform. Like it's one thing for Spotify to sell ads against my show. I, I had to submit my show to Spotify. I knew what I was doing, but for Luminary, just be like, boop, we're going to take your show and make money off it without asking me. Yeah. yeah, that was, they were cutting. I don't know if you remember, but they were taking out any of the links. Yes. It was so weird. I went into my show notes and I'm like, where are my links? They took them all off. I, they talk about the worst way to do a rollout and, and blow through a hundred million dollars. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's that, like, you know, the podcasting community is not stupid and you know, there's lots of different solutions for us out there. So if you're not going to respect us or consult us or whatever it is, right? Like we're just not, yeah, just, it wasn't a, wasn't a good look and I don't even know where they are now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On to the next, there's so, it's so interesting. Do you listen to James, Kirtland's uh, pod news. I don't listen to the the thing, but I read his newsletter every day. Okay, yeah, yeah. it's a uh, kudos to him for like just becoming like the industry like standard or, or bible, whatever you want to call it, just to be up to date about what's happening. I'm just fascinated, just like the quick little you know two to three minutes of just getting caught up is just it's a nice refresh on just how fast this industry is changing. I don't know if you remember, but I used to be part of Pod to Pod, which was one of the early podcasting newsletters. And we, yeah, yeah. Joe Berman, he, he started, but he would just grab headlines and throw them out a newsletter. And I kept pushing him and being like, we should do more. We need to do this. We need to do that. And then all of a sudden, James Cridlin comes along doing what he's doing and doing real journalism and real analysis. And I was just like, we're never going to match that. <laughs> and I just, I walked away. Yeah, yeah, he's. I got to meet him. Well, I met him at a at Podfest, a podcast movement too, I think. And we actually got to be at a podcast conference in Australia, of all places, in Brisbane. So that was fun. Um, yeah, I had. A, I wound up having dinner with him. Somebody else I was with invited me to this dinner. All of a sudden, James Cridlin's and I'm like, "Wow, you're awesome! <laughs> cool. Very he's, nice dude. Oh, super nice dude. Super smart dude too. I, I really respect what he does. 
and uh, he's got a radio background so he's, it's not like he just came into podcasting like he was doing like a daily newsletter for the radio industry and he just and he's got some programming chops so he basically hand coded like i think that site himself and it's he's built and now he's got a brian barletta's sounds profitals sort of like came as an offshoot of that too so that's that's taken off so yeah, Brian's also good people. I, I spoke to him early on in Sounds Profitable, and I was really happy to see that he got picked up by James and partnered, and he's making really big strides in what he's doing. Yeah, just do some back of the envelope math on the, the sponsorships, <laughs> <laughs> and you could pretty quickly figure out that they're, they're both doing pretty, pretty well. Yeah, I mean, are you doing uh, good newsletter stuff for vertical farming yet? Just a basic newsletter to keep people up to date on what's happened, like when stuff is posted. But uh, for folks that don't know, I have a second show called The Vertical Farming Podcast, which was sort of like, it was a, a project because we own an agency to see if I could create my own podcast client. And I'm like, there's so much money. Come. The shorter version is, I read a book called Abundance from Peter Diamandis. And it was about future technologies and like what's happening and and uh, all this stuff like nanobots. And there was a, a blurb about vertical farming. And I was like, I, I think I've heard about this. I read another book by a guy named Dixon Despamier, who's like the godfather of vertical farming. And then I did research in the industry. And I was like, whoa, it's like, couple billion dollars in, in funding coming in. I was like, well, that, that equals marketing dollars in my head. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so I started, but I, what I did was I specifically made sure I own, I was going to interview CEOs and founders. So like decision makers, but also when you start looking back at the, as the show grew and you would look back at the past guests, folks who I was considering to invite, they would look and be like, to see their colleagues on the show. And to be like, oh, okay, my fellow CEOs have been on there. And so that started to build up visibility. And I actually got a sponsor before the show even launched because I was doing interviews just as COVID was hitting. And I was asking these companies, I was like, if you want to be a sponsor for the show, but then there was no more conferences. And I was like, how much do you spend on a booth? And they're like, oh, $20,000. So I came in like at about less than half of that. And they're just like, okay, let's do it. And it's just, there was something to try. And it could have been just right place, right time. But thankfully, we're, we're wrapping up season four now, and every season has had a sponsor, and the season four sponsor just committed to seasons five and six. He's like, we're not letting this go. <laughs> so That's amazing. I sort of stumbled into becoming like a, a name in, in the vertical farming space, and I'm attending my first vertical farming conference, Indoor.ag, at the end of uh, February in Vegas. I've read a few things. I've, I've invested in something in the vertical farming space. I'm super intrigued by that and would love to see that blow up and grow a lot faster than it currently is. But I'm more for the purposes of this conversation. I love what you said about selling the sponsorship before you even launch the show. And I have a client who does that every time he's getting ready to launch the show, he's got sponsors. Like he won't waste time launching it until he has that. And so many people that I talked to in the space where I was like, how many episodes do I need before I can approach a sponsor? Like none. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's hard, right? Like you have to know what you're doing. You have to know people. You have to have relationships. People have to trust you, but there's no minimum for selling an ad. Yeah. You know, you just have to be smart, savvy, committed, and confident. And yeah, like I said, there are companies who it's not worth the time and effort to write a check with less than four zeros on it. <laughs> and so, you know, don't lowball yourself. You know, they want, they need to get their word out there and, and your pennies and their overall marketing budget. I know. I had the, I thankfully like, I had some experience in, in marketing. I worked at E-Trade and I worked at JP Morgan Chase. And, you know, those budgets were like huge. And so, and then there was the mantra at the end of the year, like, if you don't use it, you lose it. And so they'd be like, oh, we got $50,000. What do you want to do with it? And, you know, and obviously any podcaster would love to have a portion of that go to their show. So I think I just was thinking about reverse engineering. I'm like, well, how would I create something that they would be interested 
in partnering with and i grabbed all the socials before i even launched the show so there's on instagram on twitter on a linkedin page on facebook i had vertical farm pod like on all of them so i was, I was slowly starting to like see what, what was happening in the space and then started the show so it's just been fascinating but it was it took me by surprise in terms of like how now people are like oh i was looking for a job in vertical farming i heard your show like do, can you connect me with anyone <laughs> so now we just launched the vertical farming jobs board as well but i'm curious in terms of you and you talked about the work you're doing with your agency like how far back the podcasting story goes because we've connected at conferences probably mapcon was the first one we had joe pardo <laughs> Shout out to Joe Pardo, the hardest working solo conference <laughs> organizer in the world. And now YouTube sensation. Is that what he's doing now? It's hard to keep up. Yeah, he's he's doing a Shark Tank YouTube show where he oh, really? does live reaction. And he's doing great. And he's talking to some of the people who go on the show and brings them on. And yeah, you know, Joe is a original hustler. Um, and when he has an idea, he runs with it and... He's so positive and he, all the time on Facebook, he's constantly posting people who are commenting on it with like, you know, he loves sharing those comments and always writing back. Thank you for your interest. Like he's just so positive. I, I love that guy. He's so, so genuine. I crashed at his house for the first MapCon, I think, because I came in like a, a night early and he's like, oh, I just, I think I slept in his, his kids were away and I, I think I slept in his son's bunk bed or something like that. <laughs> was that in the high school or was that when he was at the hotel? No, the the hotel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So the first one was in the gymnasium of his, of his high school or something like that. That was, uh, did you go to that one? I did. I, so to your question, my podcasting journey officially started in like 2007, 2008. Okay. So the iPhone came out, the first podcast store was introduced by Apple, right? It became a tab on, on iTunes. And I was working in radio, working in the newsroom of a talk station here in New Jersey and I was like, oh, these are interesting. We could probably do something. And I, you know, basically convinced my boss to repackage our early morning five o'clock news hour as a podcast. So we would strip out the commercials and, and the traffic and, and the nonsense and post that. So I was technically podcasting. Very cool. And then I worked for the Wall Street Journal for almost eight years. They had a radio network and they were really, really early into the podcasting game. By the time I had gotten there, they had already had about six or seven shows. And so I was hired to do 50% radio, 50% podcasting. And while I was there, we launched a few new shows. We, you know, I was hosting, producing. Are any of them still up? Are my old episodes still up? Probably not. So what happened was I was there for almost eight years. At the end of 2014, I was getting ready to interview for a promotion. Going to do like, you know, they finally were, radio was having problems. Yeah. And they were like, we should probably lean into this podcasting stuff. And I was like, I'll do it. And uh, I was getting ready to interview for a job. The day of the interview, I got an email that says, hey, we've got to push this off a couple of weeks. You know, we'll get back to you. And I was like, yeah, no problem. Corporate life stuff happens. And I found out about two weeks later, the reason why they pushed my interview off was because instead they were laying us all off. Oh, geez. They shut down the radio network. They laid off everybody, including the podcast unit. So at the end of 2014, right around that time, this little show called Serial came out. I was out of a job. Wow. And so... So six months later, they were like, oof, you know, we probably need to stay in podcasting. <laughs> but by then, I was trying to find some work. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And folks who I used to interview at the Journal for podcasts were like, these were kind of useful to us. Can you help us? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll figure it out. Like, I really just need a computer. And so I started producing for a few people that I knew 
and got, you know, connected to a, a couple of other folks through friends. So just freelance work at the time. Just totally freelance, oh. independent, really wasn't thinking about this as becoming full-time work. It was just, let me do this, make some, bring in some money while I figure out, you know, where I'm going to find a full-time job. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it kept growing. And 2016, I landed a client, first client who like found me out of the blue. Just a, hey, I found you on LinkedIn. You know, there's not that many podcast producers. You used to work in finance. You could probably help me out better than most of these guys. I was like, okay, sure. His show blew up. You know, some of his friends and people who were on the show and people listening to the show were like, hey, your show sounds amazing. How do you do? And he's like, you talk to Matthew. And so 2017, right around the time that my kids were born, I quit all my part-time jobs. I went full-time into this and haven't looked back since. And since then, we've added about 15 people to the team, about 80 plus clients, and uh, launching all sorts of new crazy services and ideas uh, every day. Well, not every day. It takes me <laughs> forever to launch something, but i got a bunch of new ideas. <laughs> it was so interesting because you had the background in radio. And so where, when you started that, like where did that interest come from? Like how did you get into radio? I always enjoyed pushing buttons. And I was just always fascinated by the idea of broadcasting. And so I went to school for communications. My grandparents were always like, you have a great voice. You should be on the radio. I was like, yeah, that sounds like fun. So I went to school for communications. I was in Florida though, and down in Miami. And when I got out of school, every job I looked at was like, yes. Do you also speak Spanish? No. <laughs> Goodbye. So I came home, applied for a bunch of jobs. And everyone was like, this is an entry level of job, but you need experience. Like, how am I supposed to get experience if you're not going to give me the job? Yeah. So I wound up doing Connecticut School of Broadcasting because I needed references and I needed, you know, material. And this was pre, you know, everybody could be their own content creator. So I was, you know, doing stuff and finally got a connection to the radio station said, hey, you know, I know some people over there. And he put my resume on the right desk. And so I, I was always passionate about news and politics and so I just figured, let me start at the bottom. I, my first job, I had to be in at work 4 a.m., five days a week, 5 a.m. on Saturday. Wow. I did that for three and a half years while working a second job because radio pays nothing. <laughs> when I went to the journal, I was working shifts that started at 3 a.m., 5 a.m. Where were the journal's offices? So there was a big office in Princeton, New Jersey. Okay. That's where the radio network was. And it was funny because I used to drive by it every day on my way to the old job. And I saw the the big satellites outside. And one day I actually wound up working as a temp in that building for a different department. And I would pass. They have the studios. Like their offices were beautiful. And there was this big glass room on the first floor. And the booths were facing outward into the hallway. Oh, cool. So all these anchors were sitting there doing their report. And I would walk by and I'd see the on-air lights. And I was like, one day I'm going to work here. And one day I actually worked there. It was amazing. <laughs> They also had an office in New York, and for two years, I commuted into New York. I produced one of their afternoon talk shows and worked some really grueling hours. But I'll be honest, during the talk show was when things started to go bad for radio, and I lost my passion for it. Like I'd seen a lot of my radio friends get laid off, and I'd seen what bureaucracy and corporations do to radio and to information. And I always found the podcasting interesting because it's it's basically the same thing, but without the restrictions of broadcasting and FCC and time limits and all that nonsense. And so when I got laid off, I, I said, I'm never going to work in radio again. I wound up freelancing at a station, but that was mostly as a way to get leads. <laughs> but yeah, I enjoy the freedom of it. And it's funny. I wasn't actually, I didn't even listen to podcasts personally until like 
2012, 2013. So I worked in it for almost 10 years without listening to them. What was those early jobs at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. job? Like, what were you doing there? I was in the newsroom. So I would get in at four o'clock and I would have to help. So we ran the network for the state of New Jersey. So this was at the time it was called Millennium Radio. And we had a cluster of 15 stations. And so we would feed them news and weather at the top and the bottom of the hour. And so I had to go in and help record the meteorologist reports. I had to help record my boss doing the network reports. I had to help the reporters with their assignments. I was updating the website. Jack of all trades. <laughs> yeah. And so I was there for five hours in the morning. You know, I would leave at nine o'clock and most of the building would just be walking in at nine o'clock. Interesting. Um, and then I got to I got to anchor the news on the weekends for them and pick up some shifts here and there doing that stuff. I used to do there's a outfit out of New York called Shadow Traffic. And so when you listen to radio and they give you the traffic reports, they have people my job was to sit in an office and call the state police, communicate with our helicopter, communicate with our drivers, and group all that information and put it into the computer so that the anchors could just go in the studio and go, over here on the George Washington Bridge, we got this going yeah. on, blah, 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 blah. And <laughs> I so I, I got, yeah, so I got connected to to doing that. I did a few on-air reports for them. It was shadow traffic something that was shared by multiple radio stations because that phrase sounds familiar like shadow traffic on the ones like cbs F- i don't know if cbs fm i'm sure i'm really dating myself with these radio references but it I sounds like it's all coming back to me a little bit now yeah no so i did a shift for shadow traffic on christmas day and i had to be i was on four stations literally Every 10 minutes, I was talking to a different station. So like 02, I was over here. 04, I was over here. 06, I was over here. Okay. So I was doing CBS and WINS, and I was actually doing SiriusXM. We were updating their traffic reports, and they've got off. They used to have offices. I think it got taken over by Westwood One or something like that. But yeah, that's that's how most places get traffic is from these. So I may have heard your voice. You probably have. <laughs> Let me think. I have been on the radio and probably about... 30 cities over my time because the journal was the same way at the journal we didn't have a radio station we were just a syndication outfit so we would do the reports cbs 880 was our like you know our big one and so yeah at 28 and 58 past the hour the anchor would turn to us and they'd say what happened to the markets and it'd be like turning to espn we would give you the scores the dow did this the sp did that the nasdaq did this by the way new york city google's buying an office and we were there for a minute and then we were gone and Three minutes later, I was talking to a station in Phoenix and then talking to one in Atlanta and San Fran. And Interesting. So yeah, we've been all over. I can hear the 1010 winds, like key, the chord. Like one of those things. You give us 22 minutes, we'll give you the world. yes, yes. We had on at 101.5, the station in Jersey that I was on, one of the sliders on the board. So you have all the microphones and all the inputs. One of them was actually that like fake teletype machine. So you would actually have to pop that up to get the... Oh, yeah, yeah, sound yeah. like a newsroom like, behind yeah, you. Yeah, because the newsroom behind That's hilarious. But yeah, we were in a soundproof room. There was a newsroom behind me. <laughs> well, did you have to have, like, I always think about the radio voice. And I, I remember when I first started getting into podcasting, I interviewed a couple of folks that came from radio. And they would have this voice like this. And it's like, hey, is that something that was, like, cultivated or, like, I don't know, encouraged or, or taught even back then? It's interesting you bring that up because I was always told I had a voice for radio. And when I got into radio, when I got to the journal, one of my bosses there was like, you can't be on the radio. You don't have a voice for it. I'm like, really? <laughs> and it was very discouraging. 
There are gatekeepers in corporate America broadcasting that will tell you what they think is a radio voice and they will make decisions that way. That's wild. But there was a guy I used to work with at the Jersey station who had the, he had one of the strangest voices. That's the best way I can describe it. But he was one of the hardest working reporters in the world. And I remember someone saying like, yeah, he'll never be big in it because his voice is terrible. I was like, but because his voice is so strange, he was so memorable. And like, I wish he, like, if he was a national radio reporter, like everybody would know his name because he was just such a great voice and he was just such a good reporter. But people telling him that all the time, he finally left radio and, and is much happier without it. See, you got to track him down and do a podcast episode with him. <laughs> I should check in on him and see what he's up to. He wound up coming into some money from a, a relative or something and got to just gallivant and have fun. So ha good for him. He's a nice yeah, guy. That must be nice. What do you think the biggest misconception was with folks from radio? Because I, I feel like a lot of them were just poo-pooing like podcasting. They're just like, oh, that's, that's just like for amateur hour and like, kind of like a ham radio vibe or something like that. And, and now when you see you know, almost a decade later, what's, what's happened. I was wondering, you were in the trenches there and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if they were just like turning their nose up at, at podcasting. They still do that. One of the biggest problems that radio had was their love and affection for their radio towers. You know, I was working after I left the journal and was starting to do the podcasting thing. Didn't want to work in radio, but there was a station around the corner from me and I used to go in there and freelance and just help them with board hopping and, and recording stuff. And I approached the, they wound up getting a new like vice president of broadcasting or whatever. And he was based out of the station. And I wound up meeting with him one day and saying, listen, I've been doing some work in, in this podcasting space. And you know, you are sitting on a gold mine of resources and most of them are collecting dust. They've got three studios that are used for four hours throughout the day. They've got all these salespeople who aren't selling. They've got a promotions department who have nothing to promote. And I was like, listen, let's not worry about like, let's use what you have and let's help people make podcasts out of this building, right? Like they'll pay you. You don't have to pay for it anymore. And so I ran this idea by him and he was like, I like it. I see where you're going with it. Let me just rework a few things. And then we'll, we'll come back next week and we'll talk about it some more. And he came back. He's like, all right, here's what I want to do. We're going to do radio. Basically. Like he came back and basically like <laughs> reworked the whole thing. He was like, it's just going to be radio. It's like, <laughs> you missed the point. <laughs> and I, at that point I was like, yeah, they, these people won't, they don't get it. They'll never get it. And they are so reliant on their focus groups and their, you know, the reports and the analytics that they get that tell them this is what people want. They only want to hear three minutes of this and this and that. Like, but then you threw something like cereal at them or this American life or Joe Rogan show that goes on for three hours. And they were responding to it and they just, they couldn't get out of their own way. It's almost like the idea of that sunk cost fallacy. And we're just like, this is like, we're, we have so much invested in this infrastructure and this is what we know. And this has been, it's been this way forever. And, you know, cause radio has a rich, rich history and tradition. Right. And so, you know, there's probably people just like in news, like if you made it to like the anchor of a radio station and your goal is to be in radio, you're pretty much like you've made it right. And you're just like, okay, like this is what I've worked for my whole life. And so I'm not going to rock the boat and even the sponsorship stuff, because I think we saw early on that the radio station companies were getting into podcasting and then, then they started selling off the radio stations because they're like, okay, <laughs> you know what? That's not, that model's just like slowly, slowly like uh, falling apart. 
Yeah, it comes down to the problem is people in radio think that radio is the end all be all, right? The same way that people in broadcast television think that broadcast television is the end all be all. And what they don't understand is that it's not about the technology or the delivery system. You are, you said radio is a long, rich history. Spoken word has a long, rich history. Good point. Yeah. That's all we're doing. All we are doing is spoken word. Podcasting is just the delivery mechanism for spoken word, for storytelling. And so if you treat, right, like there were people at the turn of the century who were like, I'm in the horse and buggy industry and I'm always going to be in the horse and buggy industry. And then there were people who said, well, no, I'm in the transportation industry. And so when cars came out, they went to cars. And so if you're one of these people who is stuck thinking you're in the radio industry and not in the information industry or the communications industry or the music, right? Like all these different things, storytelling industry, like that's who's getting, that's why NPR has been so successful because NPR right away said, we are in the job, like our job is broadcasting in the sense of like, our job is to let people know what is going on. And if this delivery system helps us to do that, then that's what we're going to do, right? Like Netflix is not television. It's storytelling. It's just, it's telling good stories and they have a different delivery system. That's why they're eating the lunch of so many other people who don't get it. And radio is stuck in their clocks. They're stuck in their rules. They're stuck to these towers and, um, their formats. Yeah. They're stupid formats. I always laugh in the early days when I would hear radio shows being made into podcasts and they would hear the host be like, okay, if you just joined us on a podcast episode and I'm just like, oh, okay. Like so just old habits I heart. I have so many clients who were like, I really, you know, I've always been told it's gotta be 22 minutes. I'm like, no, it doesn't have to be 22 minutes. I can stop it and listen wherever I want to. It should be as long as it takes to deliver value. Stop. If you want to be stuck in a clock, go do a broadcast. But no, I, I, yeah. <laughs> What's your fondest memory of your radio days? I don't know if I have a fondest is such a, <laughs> man, that's such a term. I could tell you, I have some of the most memorable days. Unfortunately, what, what I remember most were the tragedies. You know, most of my days were pretty boring and pretty routine. Yeah. But like, I remember when the, uh, the London subway bombing happened. Okay. That was a big news day and it happened right around the time I got to work and from about 4.30 until 9.30, the day went by like this, right? We were just so busy. Everything had to change. We had to tear it up. We had to start from scratch and, you know, obviously something terrible was happening, but being at the front line of trying to find the information and get it out to people, I remember that being, you know, that was one of my memorable days at work. What about 9-11? 9-11 was, well, I was still in college during 9-11, so I didn't start till 2004. Okay. Yeah, so that was like a, that was like that moment for you guys then with the London bombing. Yeah, and what was funny was I was at the state, you know, it was a New Jersey talk station. Like, we really only focused mostly on New Jersey news, so, but it was still so close to 9-11 that it felt like a, you know, a really, really big story. It, truthfully, when I was at the journal, I got to the journal 2007, late 2007, started full-time early 2008, and that's when the financial collapse happened. Oh, yeah. And so I remember we spent, you know, our days were pretty busy, but my boss and I spent like a good three days putting together this like 20-minute report explaining what had happened and what was going on. 
And this is coming from someone who, when I interviewed for that job, I said to my boss, like, I don't really know a ton about finance and stocks. She's like, it's okay. Like, I'd rather you don't because you need to explain it to more people who don't know what it is. And so she was always like, treat it like the sports scores. You know, you're just giving people the results at <laughs> yeah, the end yeah. of the day. That's all it is. But yeah, I, I remember learning a ton about how the world works and, and what happened. And truthfully, thank God I was there because we were needed at that time where everybody else was getting laid off in broadcasting. So it was very fortuitous to have that particular role. I was at E-Trade and uh, it was interesting because we had daily calls to with my, my boss at the time and he worked in finance and so they were monitoring the amount of money people were pulling out of their accounts like because they were just like and we were trying to figure out if we were going to be misfits basically i was like do we still have a job so it was like for a couple of weeks just like monitoring like how many like hundreds of thousands of dollars were being pulled out of these brokerage accounts and just like and they were doing the reports twice a day because that's how worried they were that people were like freaking out because because of the, the collapse that was happening but it was interesting time to be working at a, a financial services company i'll tell you that uh, yeah i it, it was just even to this day i still kind of feel like we're still in like ptsd of that it still never felt like we really recovered from that although people in the markets would probably tell you otherwise because yeah and just a little side venture on the on the finance side, it's been interesting to see what's been happening with people's interest in, in crypto and Bitcoin and decentralization of finances and this new movement of DeFi, decentralized finance. That almost like, in, a, in the same way, similar to podcasting, it feels like it's a matter of time before it moves to that model. I don't know how far off we are, whether it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, but it's, it seems inevitable. Like, I don't think people are making more printing presses at this point. <laughs> like, I think the move to like, giving people like direct control and, and moving up, moving the middleman away has been interesting. So been dabbling in that a little bit and that, that tends to be its own rabbit hole as well. Yeah. I agree with you that I think it's the way things should go, but there are some people who have lots of, lots of things at stake in the current system and oh yeah, power loves maintaining power, man. Well, it'll be kicking and screaming definitely, <laughs> but it feels like it's inevitable and it'll just, it'll be messy and it, it'll, I'm sure a lot more folks will lose money, and uh, but it seems inevitable, and maybe you know, it, it's see if it happens in our lifetime. But it seems like that's the movement when you think about that sort of stuff. I mean, countries are adopting it as, as their currency as well. So, I mean, I like you know, I I regularly buy some Bitcoin, and everyone's like, "Oh, so you trade in Bitcoin?" I was like, "No, I'm I'm just buying it. I I don't expect it to do anything, but I'm going to hold it for the next thirty years." And it feels yeah. As long as I always tell people, it's like with that, it's like you go to Vegas. And you're like I got five hundred bucks, I'm going to Vegas. If I lose it all, I'm like, I still had a good time. It was fun. You know, like I, I didn't plan on like, it, it's a bonus if I even came back, come back with my 500, <laughs> like I'm prepared <laughs> to like lose it. So if you have that mindset, it's I think from an education perspective, it's important. Our mutual podcasting friend, Gary Leland has been hot into like podcasting space for a while. And I remember him, you know, a couple of years ago, just me like, I'm getting into this Bitcoin thing. I've got this Bitcoin podcast. I'm like, good for you. And, you know, I don't know when, if you remember when you first heard about it, but if I had bought some when I first heard about it, I'd be <laughs> in a better position. One of my clients did a, he did a special series just on crypto, 2017, maybe even 2018. And at the time there wasn't like a Coinbase, yeah. right? Where it was super easy just to buy it on your own. And I remember I might've bought some, and I, I just don't even know where it is, but yeah, I'm, I'm kicking myself for not being more interested in it when it had first come out. Yeah. Now my new rabbit hole is NFTs. <laughs> you know, that's why I, 
that's one I, I understand NFTs and I get it and I can see the possibilities, but I have not really done anything with that one yet. More hobbies. Like, it's not like we have any more free time on our hands either. No, just more ways to, to lose our money. <laughs> <laughs> more ways to turn our money into something that's not uh, in our pockets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious when you started to discover the podcasting community because you've had all this experience in radio. You obviously, you know, had your the production chops and, you know, you were creating good shows and and did you feel like a need to go look what was happening in the space in terms of like conferences and and people gathering and and meeting up? It's funny. I so I was doing the independent thing for a while and I guess I got involved with a couple of meetup groups, not around podcasting, just general interest stuff. Okay. And at one of these meetup groups, I actually presented. I was like, hey, I do podcasting if anybody's interested. And some guy came up to me afterwards like, hey, you know, I'm you know, also a Jersey guy thinking about doing some podcasting. We should hang out. We went and had lunch a, a couple of days later. And he's like, yeah, I'm thinking about checking out this uh, MapCon thing. I was like, what? It's like, yeah, this Mid-Atlantic podcast conference. I was like, oh, something in New Jersey? And that day, signed up, bought a ticket, went down there. That's how I got, you know, that's how I met Joe Pardo. And I'm, I'm at MapCon. First time I'm doing anything in the public space of podcasting, right? There's so many silos. There are people who, there are people who don't even know that podcast movement and PodFest and all these different things, pod news, they don't even know the stuff exists, right? They, they podcast, they're happy, they don't care. Yeah. And I was one of those people who was like, oh, I was a podcaster with the Wall Street Journal. I don't need blah, blah. But I go to PodFest, uh, MapCon, I should say. And the first like group of people I'm standing in a circle with includes Dave Jackson. I'm like, this is a guy whose name I keep seeing all over the place. This is, I'm talking to Dave Jackson. This is amazing. And it was like right then and there. And I was like, this is a great community, right? All these people spoke and they were talking about how friendly they are and how driven they are and all these things that they could do. There were a couple of shysters in there too. You know, <laughs> one guy was like, I'm a social media star. I'm going to tell you how to be huge and famous. I went to look at his Twitter. It's like, he's got less Twitter followers than me. How's this guy? Like, what is he going to teach me? Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, I did that one. And then I started to realize that these conferences existed. And I think that's how I, you know, slowly got involved with pod to pod and discovered DC PodFest. And when I went to DC PodFest, I met Chris Kramitzos for the first time. Oh, yeah. Went down to PodFest. And I'd heard about podcast movement, but every year up until the first one I went to in Philly, like the first one I had ever heard about happened the same week that my kids were supposed to be born. Okay. Like, I don't know if I can leave my wife at home <laughs> with two newborn twins just to go to a podcasting conference. And then the next year, something else happened that I couldn't go. But it really was Joe Pardo and MapCon that kind of set me up and got me interested in that stuff. And DC PodFest and Chris Kramitzos really blew it up for me. Yeah, I think that I think to a person, everyone always comments on how like coming on from other industries, like my partner Natalie's a photographer, she's gone to photography conferences and she's just like, it's just different. Like everyone is helpful. We all want each other to succeed. There's, you know, you know, and then like every other industry, you start to get the, the people who want to make bigger names for themselves and, and, and think that they're bigger than they are or <laughs> or just trying to sell you stuff. There's a really awkward podcast movement where I think, or was it PodFest, where they had someone close out one day and he was just like a super like marketing guy and he was using all the like the, the the sleazy tricks about like meet me in the back of the room and one time only price for this package and something like that. 
And so a lot of that like really rubs people in the wrong way. But I think overall, like Dave Jackson, like, you know, when you start to meet these people and, and I had, thankfully, because I had the show, like was interviewing like Elsie, was interviewing Gary, was interviewing, you know, Dave on the show. And I was just like, wow, there's there's, so, there's like down to earth people and like to a person, they all just want to help. I remember one of my first pod fests, somehow or another, I got myself sitting at a table after all the activities with Rob Walsh, with Rob Greenlee, who was at Spreaker at the time, with Todd from Blueberry, Dave Jackson was there. And I was just like, these are the titans of the industry at the time. And we we're just sitting around shooting the S, you know, BSing about stuff. And I learned a bunch sitting there, but I also felt like I could, you know, give my opinion and give my thoughts and yeah, Rob Walsh would smack it down every so often. Cause that's what Rob does. <laughs> it was the curmudgeon table. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, lovely people, but yes, they can definitely be curmudgeons and protective of their own, of, you know, what they're doing. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I've always felt that the space is mostly made up of people that want to help that want to be generous with their time. But then, yeah, you would go to certain sessions or you'd hear certain speakers. And you're like, there's not, there's not really a lesson coming out of this. This is mostly just someone who's like, I'm amazing. And here's how I did it. It's like, I can't really take that advice because I don't do what you do or, you know, and this is how I do it. And it only costs 1999 if you do it today. And it's like, Oh, this is a sales pitch. Every time I try and speak, I really avoid, like I mentioned who I am and what I do, but I never sell. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, I should be selling more, but those, a lot of the speakers have rubbed me the wrong way because it's not, teaching it's usually just a, a giant ego stroke for themselves yeah and i've thankfully had the opportunity to speak at podcast movement and podfest and i think I'd, i've always because of some of the trainings that i took just wanted to have the goal of inspiring just like one person like literally like regardless of how many people are in the audience and and so far it's you know haven't had been at a conference in a while or, or spoken but you know it's happened and just one person's like i really enjoyed your story and i really like was motivated and, and then and that's it and i'm like okay good mission accomplished i, I convinced one more person or to like get excited about podcasting or, or to try it or you know to realize that there's there is something here if they're just willing to put in the time and the effort yeah most of the time that i talk it's usually here are the things that i've learned from mistakes i've made it's like i've already messed up so hopefully you don't have to but honestly, I think you have to. Mess. I think most people don't learn without making the mistakes themselves. Yeah. It's hard. So it's crazy because I started podcast. I went to New Media Expo in 2014 and then started the show that year. So I'm heading into year eight, which is bananas to think about like that, that uh, been in old school. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're even older school. So <laughs> what's your thoughts on like where we're headed? And, you know, is it being corporatized? Is it just everyone's got in their lane and there's always opportunities for indies and your thoughts. I think both of those things can be true. I think it is getting increasingly corporatized because where money shows up, corporations will follow. Yeah. Which isn't always necessarily a bad thing. I think certain corporations have brought innovation to the space that are useful. I think it is, you know, there's a lot of people who say, Oh, it's oversaturated. We're not really oversaturated. There are a lot more podcasts and, you know, there's a lot more terrible podcasts and there's a lot more better podcasts, right? I think the, the quality is getting better on, on one end and then, right, there's more and more people just putting out nonsense and garbage on the other. I think it is harder as an independent podcaster to make a splash and make a difference. But I think if you're getting into the space with that intention, you're not going to be successful. I think you have to have a, you need a mission that 
podcasting makes sense for. I'm always right. Like I, I'm always driven crazy by people who post like the Facebook groups. Like I really want to start a podcast, but I don't know what to do it about. It's like, then why do you want this podcast? Like it's just a terrible idea. <laughs> but there are plenty of people who are like, I have this really weird idea for a podcast. I'm like I love weird ideas for podcasts. If you're doing something weird, then nobody else has done it yet. So like, shout out to Drew Ackerman. Sleep with me. <laughs> right. Like that's, you know, one of my best, one of my oldest clients is this guy. He was a chess teacher and he's like, you know, there's not a lot of good chess podcasts and I want to do one. I don't know. I was like, if you're looking for that podcast and nobody else is doing it, you'll probably be successful with it. And let me tell you, he is successful with it. He is constantly ranked in the top five chess podcasts. He's talked to international and national chess superstars. Cool. He's got relationships with all sorts of big chess industries. I don't even know what it's done for his chess teaching business, but the guy is just, he's, you know, he's crushing it. What's the name of the show? The Perpetual Chess. The Perpetual Chess. I was, I would have gone with all the right moves. Mm, that's not <laughs> bad. That's not bad. But, but it, you know, it started with either I was looking for a podcast about X and I couldn't find it, or I have a very, very specific niche. Is that a good idea for a podcast? And when I get those two, I'm like, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the more niche, the better. Yeah. I mean- so I one like yes there are there are more corporations coming in yes it can be annoying getting squeezed out of what used to feel like open space and new and noteworthy in Apple and all that other nonsense it's not important yes corporations do bring some interesting innovations and you know even the extra money I think has been you know good for companies like Captivate that are constantly innovating and adding and bringing new features that make it easier for us and for everybody else. I think the future of the space is, I mean, we talked about this a little bit before we jumped on, but I'm a big fan of the idea of local, localized content. Yeah. I think that as a, a space that needs deep exploration. You want to talk a little bit about what you're doing there as well? I will. Yeah. There's also, I think the dynamic insertion, I, at some point I'm looking for like a choose your own adventure podcast. James Cridlin had that like, you know, clock update podcast and like, it's coming. I just feel it. Someone's going to do a choose your own adventure. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. And listen, is podcasting always going to be, I don't know. Like we said earlier, we're storytellers. So are people going to be telling stories in short audio format? Absolutely. Yeah. Will it be done via RSS? I don't know. But I, you know, there'll always be a need for people behind the microphone talking. So local. So I've always had this dream of creating some sort of directory where you can stand in your hometown and say, show me the content creators talking about my neighborhood, right? So you're Minneapolis, right? Like who's the Minneapolis Vikings podcaster? Who's the, you know, Minneapolis stars YouTuber. Who's the person who's doing the like restaurant review for the St. Paul, you know, restaurant scene. And so I want to help to put all that information together in a place that makes it easy for people to find it. Cause right now, if, you know, if you're doing a show Viking talk, Right. If the title is Viking talk, well, Minneapolis isn't in the title. So if I search Minneapolis, you might not come up. So how do I find you, you know, that way? And new RSS standards are probably going to help make that easy. But so to start that, I I'm opening up a studio here in South Jersey, Towncast Studios. You know, it'll be a studio where anybody can use it for recording video, audio, audio books. Heck, even if you just want to do your Zoom calls in higher quality, <laughs> we can do that. Yeah. But, you know, part of the focus is going to be training and encouraging people to create content that serves the needs of our community. Awesome. Cherry Hill, South Jersey, even the Philadelphia market that's, you know, 10 minutes across the river. 
so that's that's really what I want to focus on. And then if it works, build it out, and you know, maybe you'll see a town cast uh, in you know Minneapolis soon. I love the name too. Very cool. Thank you. Are you still working with the folks at Staples? I think you had had a chat with them, or they were they were, I know they were doing the studios. And so like, talk about bad timing. <laughs> So yeah, I got called by Staples to consult with them. They were opening up shared co-working spaces in their stores, which is a great idea, right? You have these retail locations that are taking up, you know, 100,000 square feet and everyone's buying stuff online. So what do you do? You take 50% of the store, you put in offices in there, you let people come and work. Oh, and by the way, you put in a bunch of business services. And one of the things they included was a podcast studio. So they they spent some time. They opened up five locations in Boston that had these co-working spaces with a podcast studio. These studios were beautiful, looked good, sound good, worked good. I mean, they were great. But uh, I took that trip for Staples in February of 2020. And, you know, as we were saying earlier, in March of 2020, they're like, yeah, shared spaces. Yeah. Not really a good thing. Co-working, yeah, not going to happen. Open mics, yeah, not really going to happen. I'd be curious to see how they're doing now that things are starting to open up a bit. I still think it's a good idea, but they were they were struggling to one, I think I'm not sure how they're co-working, you know, numbers or I'm not sure how many people wanted to work in a staples. I mean, I I think it's a good idea, but I think they were struggling to get people to realize that there was a facility there they could rent even if they weren't working in that building. Makes sense. A couple of questions as we wrap up. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Wow, that's a really good question. What have I changed my mind about recently? I don't know if I have or if I'm starting to, but because I started this business all on my own, I did everything. And, you know, as I slowly added people, I was able to move some things off my plate, but I'm still feeling very protective of a lot of the processes. And I just need to, I need to change my mind and I'm doing a little bit better job of saying, I can trust other people to help. They'll get it done and it'll be better for everybody if I do. But it still is hard to relinquish that control and relinquish those responsibilities because you care about your clients and yeah. you, know, you you hope that everybody else cares as much as you do. I relate to that and you're probably in the same boat, but like when I started the show, like I literally did everything you know, from the music to the graphics to the writing the show notes to the editing to the social media posts. It's your baby. You know, it's, it's got it's your, your name baby. on and it. And then when you start doing that, you want to do it at that level for clients. You're like, okay, I still got to do everything. But then like, you'll never grow and you'll never scale and you've got to trust people and know that the first time you hand off something, they'll probably get it 60% right. And you'll be like, ah, and you want to go <laughs> jump in there and fix it. And you're like, that's, that's not sustainable. So I, I feel you on that one. Yeah. I mean, I do have great people that I'm working with and we're, we need a few more great people, but I know some of them are mad at me. They're like, come on, man, you got you to gotta let me do more. You got to let me do more. Please, please. I want to help. Yeah. So yeah. I, I got to change my mind. Yeah. What's the most misunderstood thing about you? I think because I donned this moniker of the podcast consultant, which was really just fortuitous domain availability more than anything else, that people think I am only about podcasting, that like, I wake up and breathe, sleep, eat podcasts and like, like, oh, so you listen to this show? Like, no. Oh, and you check out this show? Like, and you've definitely heard of this show? Like, no, there's 2 million shows out there. I've got like, you know, a hundred of my own that I got to keep track of. I've got like three or four that I get to listen to on my own. But truthfully, sometimes at the end of the day, like, I just want to take earbuds out of my ear and watch yeah. TV, like just <laughs> something other than 
that listen to a podcast. I mean, I'm not upset with anything that I've ever done or, or that being the misconception about me, but you know, oftentimes I'd much rather talk about anything other than podcasting. <laughs> well, I appreciate you taking uh, an hour's worth of your time to, to talk podcasting on this show. Cause you can't get much more meta than a podcast about podcasting, talking to podcasters. <laughs> so. We do podcasting and <laughs> well, yeah, produce podcasts long overdue. I really appreciate you um, sharing your story. Cause it's I, this stuff, stuff that I learned that I didn't know. And, and I think it's only in this format where you get to like relax a bit. And, you know, like I always say, like kick back your heels and sometimes, you know, even in the conferences, like we see each other in the hallway and we're like, Hey, we got to go like either grab a bite or just a quick chat outside uh, one of the sessions. And so I think I've just been making more of a conscious effort to see who else in my podcasting circle that I want to just go deeper with. And I'm grateful for this opportunity to do that with you. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure. It is good to see you. Um, I hope I get to see you again in person really, really soon. Yes. And uh, thank you for inviting me on. It's It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Where can folks go to connect with you and learn more about uh, what you're working on? Easiest place is thepodcastconsultant.com. Or if you look for Matthew Passy. There's just me. It's Matthew with one T, Passy, P-A-S-S-Y. That's what I use on all the socials. So that's how you find me. <laughs> the good thing is not a lot of Matthews with one T. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know what? Most people get it wrong. So I own the domains for Matthew with two T's. Oh, nice. Passy, yeah, like I just, they, they all point back to me, hopefully. <laughs> Spoken like a true marketer. Thanks again, Matthew. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Harry. Thanks again to Matthew for making time, for catching up, for taking us down memory lane. It's funny sometimes when you, when you think, when I think about the relationships I've been building in this space since 2014 and that we're coming up on eight plus years and how long I've known some of these folks and I'm grateful to call them my friend. So I, I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Give that feedback back to Matthew if you did. Full show notes available at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 291. Intro and outro music composed by Cedar and Soil. Cedarsoil.com for his full list of music. Grateful for the opportunity to partner with Focusrite. Check out their awesome line of gear. We're going to get a sneak peek at some new stuff coming up pretty soon. But you can check out their current offerings at podcastjunkies.com forward slash Focusrite. Podcast production and marketing provided by Focast. If you're interested in learning how a podcast can be helpful for your business or your mission to help you find your voice, head on over to fullcast.co. Great conversation next episode with Lindsay Jepkema. She's the co-founder of Castos and another powerhouse entrepreneur that uh, I imagine you're going to learn a, l- a lot from. And if you made it this far, you're no doubt looking for this week's retention hashtag. Let's go with hashtag podcast consultant and tag Matthew at Matthew Passy. That's M-A-T-H-E-W-P-A-S-S-Y. And yes, Matthew spelled with one T, which makes his name really unique. Thanks for all you to support the show. Catch up with you guys next week.